Hi doctor, I'm Ritika from zenonco.io. It's an honor to have you on our platform. First, I would like to introduce our company, zenonco.io and Love Heals Cancer. We guide cancer patients in their treatment journey. Our company aims to extend the life and improve the quality of life for cancer patients through an integrative oncology treatment, which includes both medical treatment and complementary treatments. We provide end-to-end care to patients and also help with counseling, healing sessions, Ayurveda, medical cannabis, anti-cancer diet, awareness session, and pain and palliative care. This session is going to be all about spreading awareness and educating cancer patients. And for that, we have Dr. Salil with us. Let me take this and uh, this opportunity to introduce him. Dr. Salil is a uh, super specialist in the field of oncology. He has completed his DM in oncology, hematology from Asia's premier cancer institute, Gujarat Cancer and Research Institute. He's well-renowned as an expert in diagnosing and management of cancer and an expert in chemotherapy, molecular targeted therapy, hormonal and immunology treatment. He has also uh, new, has numerous, uh, numerous national and international publications in various conferences to his name. He has over eight years of experience in the medical field. It's an honor to have you with us, doctor. It's uh, Thank you for taking out time from your busy schedule to do this session with us. Uh, thank you, sir. And I'm sure a lot of queries will be answered through this session. So is there something that you would like to say before we start with the question? No, you got it spot on. So I'm a DM medical oncologist. I am currently practicing with Apollo Hospitals. I'm a consultant at Apollo and a director at Onkira Cancer Clinics. And uh, I think you got the rest of it spot on. So we can move on. Please go ahead. Okay, doctor. Uh, doctor. Uh, so my first question is, can you please explain more about molecular targeted therapy? All right. So um, imagine something like this. Uh, you have cancer, which is multifactorial. The cause for cancer is something we don't know really. We assume or we know that cigarettes cause cancer, alcohol causes cancer. Uh, some forms of radiation cause cancer, right? So there are multifactorial reasons why cancer occurs. Now the treatment of cancer up and until now, up and until perhaps in the last uh, last decade or so, until the last decade or so, uh, used to primarily involve chemotherapy, surgery and radiation. Now the chemotherapy part of it was a blanket chemotherapy. What that meant was that you gave certain drugs which are cytotoxic, certain drugs which were poisonous and they killed the cancer cells, but they also killed other normal cells in the body. That's the reason why your patient ended up with hair loss uh, because it used to damage the hair cells. Uh, you ended up patients having diarrheas uh, because it damaged the GI, uh, the gastrointestinal tract, normal cells in the GI tract. Is the reason why your patients develop anemia and thrombocytopenia means they develop a fall in their hemoglobin and fall in their platelet counts. It's because chemotherapy is by and large not specific. It's a blanket therapy which kills the cancer cells, yes, but it also kills other cells. Now, what we realized in the last decade or so is that every cancer has certain proteins on its surface, right? Now, these proteins, if they can be targeted, then you end up killing only the cancer cell. You end up killing or particularly targeting the cancer cell without damaging the normal cells. So one of the most excellent example of that is a, is a type of blood cancer, which is known as CML, chronic myeloid leukemia. Now, the chemotherapy that was used to, uh, to treat uh, chronic myeloid leukemia or CML had a, had a success rate which was very low. So the five-year survival rate was only around 15%, which means that if you had 100 patients with CML who were treated with chemotherapy, only 15 out of these patients were alive at the end of five years. 
Then came a revolutionary drug known as imatinib, which is a perfect prime example of molecular targeted therapy because it targeted a particular molecule or a particular receptor on the surface of the cancer cell. In this case, it was a tyrosine kinase inhibitor. Now, this molecular targeted therapy was so precise in its action that it changed the five-year survival rate from 15% to more than 95%. So today, because of molecular targeted therapy, and in this particular case, imatinib, which is just an oral drug, you, you have patients with chronic myeloid leukemia, a form of blood cancer, in which if 100 patients were given this drug, at the end of five years, 95% of them were alive. So that's the kind of impact molecular targeted therapy has. Molecular targeted therapy is basically the evolution of precision medicine. It is individualized treatment where you treat each patient based on the specific genetic mutations that that particular patient has, which makes his cancer different from any other person's cancer. So it's, it's personalized cancer treatment huge uh, advancement from what we had 15% to 95%. That's a huge gap. Absolutely. Yes. It's a fantastic uh, breakthrough. Exactly. Like, uh, usually people aim for improving a little bit, but 80% of the improvement, that's a huge thing. Absolutely. So, for example, in lung cancers, uh, you know, you had patients who were in stage 3 and stage 4, especially lung cancers, who had survivals of, you know, something like a couple of months to maybe a year or a year and a half on uh, chemotherapy. And today you have lung cancers where you have molecular targeted therapy based on certain mutations known as EGFR, ALCROSS, etc. Where you have them just on oral tablets and you can have the person, if he has the right sequence of mutations, they're alive for four years and five years and six years and come walking. I've had patients whose PET scans were absolutely filled with cancer. I've started them on oral treatment, oral molecular targeted therapy and patients have come back walking with their PET scans showing completely resolved disease. And this is stage four cancer. So now you have patients with lung cancer in stage four who can live for four, five, six years and counting. So that's that's the kind of uh, impact molecular targeted therapy has had. Doctor, as chemotherapy, you said that it has so many side effects. So what about the side effects of molecular targeted therapy? It's, it's significantly lower, significantly lower. Um, the reason simply is because, like I said, chemotherapy is a blanket therapy. It targets every cell in the body, which includes cancer cell and non-cancer cells. Molecular targeted therapy, on the other hand, is particularly targeting the cancer-driving mutation. So if you're not damaging the normal cells, the side effect profile is far lower. It's not that there are no side effects. Of course, there are side effects. But it's, it's, it's significantly lower than the kind of side effects you expect with chemotherapy. So it's much more easily manageable. Uh, that's a good news, doctor, for all the patients. Let me let me let me just, if I may, um, extend on that. So, if I have a patient with key who's receiving chemotherapy for lung cancer, I expect hair loss, I expect uh, fatigue, I expect nausea, I expect vomiting, uh, I expect diarrheas, I expect the counts to fall. He might go into cytopenias, anemia, thrombocytopenia. His WBC count might fall, leukopenias, which might increase the risk for infections. But the same patient, if I have him on molecular targeted therapy, for example, on a drug called as jefetinib or afatinib or any of those oral drugs, the only problems he'll probably have is maybe a bit of diarrhea and rash. And that's about it. Majority of the, and that will also be easily, easily tolerable in more than 95% of the cases. So the side effect profiles are incredibly manageable. Okay, doctor. Uh, also, along with this, can you please tell me the difference between hormonal and immunology treatment? Yeah, they're vastly different. So, um, there are certain cancers which, which are hormone dependent. For example, 
breast cancer in women breast cancer ovarian cancer uh, cervical cancers uterine cancers these are hormone dependent cancer what that means is for example in breast cancer estrogen is an hormone or progesterone is a hormone which drives the growth of the cancer cell it acts as a fuel it's it's like adding fuel to the fire right uh, similarly for ovarian cancer there are hormone receptors and for men uh for example in men uh, prostate cancer is hormone dependent so testosterone is the hormone which drives the growth of the cancer cell all right so these are hormone dependent cancers so one way of treating these cancers is to give drugs which block the hormone production for example in breast cancer there are drugs known as tamoxifen and letrozole which are anti estrogen drugs uh then there are certain drugs which directly target the estrogen receptor for example uh, fulvestrant so these are hormone uh, hormonal agents right Uh, similarly in case of prostate cancer you have uh, one of the easiest ways to deal with deal with metastatic prostate cancer is to undergo an orchidectomy which means you actually operate and remove the testis because the testis is where the hormone testosterone is produced and it acts as a fuel for uh, increasing prostate cancer so you do a surgery for the pro- for the testis or you do a medical orchidectomy where you give injections which will suppress the testosterone production so these are hormone dependent cancers where hormonal treatment basically aims to stop the production of these hormones which fuel their growth immunotherapy on the uh, other hand is something which is ground breaking which has only come in the last um, last few years and it's a special area of interest of mine immunotherapy so immunotherapy works incredibly different immunotherapy basically is reprogramming your body and um, and making your body realize that the cancer cells are not your normal human body cells but these are foreign body cells or at least you should treat them like foreign body cells basically what happens in cancer is whenever you are you are you are susceptible to an infection maybe a bacterial infection or a viral infection your immunity fights back your immunity which mainly consists of uh, white blood cells they develop an immune response which fights against the infection or in or in this case fights against the cancer that's what usually happens but what happens in certain cases is you develop mutations and because of these mutations that occur in these cells yeah the cancer cells are able to evade the immune system they are able to escape the immune system they are able to escape the t cells which believe that the cancer cell is the normal human body cell which is reproducing and so they don't attack it what immunotherapy does is it basically reprograms your t cells it reprograms your white blood cells to go and tackle or go and attack the cancer cells your cancer has certain it's a little complicated but your cancer has uh, cancer cells have certain receptors on their surface known as pd1 and pdl1 these pd1 and uh, pd1 and pdl1 receptors help them to escape from the normal immune response which is mounted by the t cells what immunotherapy does is it reactivates the immune t cells and it reminds them that the cancer cell is not a normal human body cell we must target it and we must kill it So immunotherapy works fantastic. I have very very old patients whom I have put on immunotherapy, and they have tolerated incredibly well. All right, and we are learning more and more where immunotherapy can be applicable. So once once upon a time we believed it only works for melanomas, which is a type of skin cancer. Now we know that immunotherapy works fantastic in melanomas. It works fantastic in lung cancers. It's the first line treatment for kidney cancers. There are Hodgkin's lymphomas. I have had patients who have not responded to first and second line chemotherapy. and maybe a uh, uh, five years back we would have said that these patients are not going to make it they have relapsed even after transplant some of them and we say that this patient is going to die and hodgkins lymphomas are such young patients today i have a patient who had not responded to any form of it when i put him on immunotherapy and his cancer just melted away immunotherapy is a ground breaking science we are learning more and more about it we are still learning about the new indications where immunotherapy is applicable and every 
year we find out more and more uh, areas of cancer where immunotherapy has a role to play but immunotherapy is a completely different way of science and different way of approaching cancer than where we have ever done before so i have great hopes from immunotherapy let's see how it plays out uh, doctor as i have heard that uh, when usually people have cancer as you said that it's the only treatment like people only know about uh, chemotherapy surgery or radiation so it's still less known about Im immunotherapy and hormonal treatments in india absolutely so there are two reasons for that uh, hormonal therapy i would say um, a large number of people are on hormonal therapy immunotherapy you are right uh there are two two aspects to this one that immunotherapy is something upcoming so um, you know people yet need to be aware of this option people need to in fact go up and ask their doctors about this i try and always make it a point to educate my patient so that he realizes what the options are you know patients now are getting more and more smart where they come up and do ask me that you know i don't want to do chemo are there other options available so there is awareness more than before the second more important problem is that immunotherapy is ridiculously expensive at present so the majority drugs which are made are made by only a few chemical a uh, few companies which hold the patency rights all right so it's very difficult to procure these drugs for the general public as of yet so for every say 10 patients who may advise immunotherapy or who would be the ideal candidate for immunotherapy there will be only around 3 of them who will actually go on to take the immunotherapy because it is so expensive okay but that will change all the drugs that first came out in the market were ridiculously expensive because the companies which made them had patency rights but in the next 4 years so i don't want to name any pharma company but in the next 4 years two of the biggest pharma companies are going to lose their uh, patency rights on two of the biggest immunological drugs in the in the world right so things are going to change and once they lose their patency rights you're going to have a large number of biological similars which are going to be made by companies which are going to bring the prices down significantly so that's going to be a huge boon uh, the other reason is uh, that people are confused about what immunotherapy is and the um, there is alternative medicine and there is a scope for alternative medicine but somehow immunotherapy gets exploited a lot okay you have a lot of centers which practice so called immunotherapy which is just outright fooling the patient they are not even fda approved uh, things that keep going on in the background and people are desperate when it comes to cancer uh, unfortunately uh, you know people reach that point where they are willing to try anything especially in a stage 4 metastatic cancer and i and i understand that but then there are always people around the world who are you know trying to exploit that desperation so in the name of immunotherapy in the guise of immunotherapy a lot of hopscotch ridiculous treatments go on i know so many patients who have fallen prey to this so you need to be very aware you need to go to the right person to take the right treatment that's why we are having these sessions to spread awareness about Absolutely. the number of treatments available to them uh, so doctor can you please shed some light on lung cancers and their treatments all right so lung cancer so when you talk about any cancer you basically divide it into four stages that is the most common uh, classification of cancers a stage 1 cancer is a very small uh, tumor which generally is easily operable that's the best if if at all anyone were to end up with cancer you want a stage 1 disease which is operated in most cases and removed a stage 2 is a slightly more larger disease but in most cases would still be operable a stage 3 disease by and large which includes lung cancer also is a disease which has spread at least locally so that usually means that a stage 3 disease is one where there are lymph nodes which are positive a lymph node is the local areas where the cancer spreads into all right so in case of lung cancer that would be the mediastinal nodes uh, which is the nodes in your chest cavity uh, and a stage 4 disease is one which is metastatic which means it has spread through the blood or the lymph and if you were to remove a pet scan if the person had a mass in the lung 
and then you found also that he has disease in the liver or in the bones that's a stage 4 disease uh, which up by and large is uh, not curable i have a few stage 4 cancer patients whom we have cured they are known as oligometastatic stage 4 cancer patients which means they have very limited stage 4 disease but by and large stage 4 cancer is not curable but the amount of lifespan that can be achieved now in a stage 4 metastatic cancer patient has improved tremendously especially in lung cancer so stage 1 and 2 lung cancer i would operate stage 2 3 and advanced stage 2 disease stage 3 disease i generally give them radiation along with chemotherapy that's known as concurrent uh, radio chemotherapy all right so i use a combination of radiation along with chemotherapy and we still try for cure and many of these patients will be cured stage 4 cancer patient is a patient who unfortunately in most cases not all but in most cases will not be curable so now a stage 4 cancer patient our aim is to improve his quality of life and to take and improve upon his lifespan as much as is possible now like i said before until a couple of years back the only option in stage 4 cancer was chemotherapy which basically bought you a lifespan of somewhere between a couple of months to maybe a year if you were really lucky a year and a half today on the other hand in lung cancer you have options such as molecular targeted therapy why because you target certain driver mutations every cancer occurs because of certain mutations what these mutations do is these mutations which take place in the cell cycle they promote immortality among the cancer cells so the cancer cells don't die anymore they just keep on reproducing they keep on growing so this immortality which occurs because of mutations it targets these mutations all right these mutations are known as driver mutations so in case of lung cancer there are certain without getting too technical there are certain mutations known as egfr alk and ros and if you can target these mutations which you can now target with just oral drugs oral tablets it works far better than chemotherapy it works fantastic it has side effects which are minimal as compared to chemotherapy and you can increase the lifespan of a patient from anywhere between 2 to 3 to up to 5 to 6 years so that's incredible i have patients i i remember i had this young this is just a week back i had this very young 32 year old uh, gentleman who came for the first time a non smoker he had a uh, told me you know he had a one and a half year old daughter who's just uh, uh, yeah and he was telling and he ended up with stage 4 lung cancer now this is a person who you know a, a, a couple of years back i would have very few options today on the other hand i got his uh, anytech i got his genomic analysis done i did a next generation sequencing i found out that he has a targetable mutation and i have put him on an oral drug and i'm very sure he is going to respond beautifully you know of course is it curable the answer unfortunately still no maybe someday we might even reach there but can i really buy him a good quality of life and a good couple of years that's definitely now the other thing that has happened in lung cancer is immunotherapy immunotherapy has come up in a huge way in lung cancer and i dare not say it i'm not going to use the word cure but we have patients in lung cancer in stage 4 who have beautifully responded to immunotherapy with minimal side effects who continue to remain in remission even 3 and 4 years after treatment which means that 4 years down a metastatic stage 4 lung cancer which has spread everywhere i've put them on immunotherapy and at the end of 4 years their cancer is completely gone and it's still not there i i won't use the word cure because that's a very dangerous word to use in in, in metastatic cancer but for all practical purposes the patient has no cancer anymore and we are still waiting but the cancer has not come back it's four years the patients are still alive and doing absolutely fine so that that's the incredible landmark things that have happened as far as lung cancer is concerned how does immunotherapy work like is it uh, directly given in the blood stream or an oral drug so in, in in most cases when we talk about the immunotherapy which i'm referring to which is basically pd1 pdl1 ctla4 inhibitors these are given iv 
so it's it's given over maybe a couple of hours just one or two hours in most cases over one hour in fact uh, usually uh, once every 14 days or once every 21 days in most cases and that's it and just you just have to come it's, it doesn't require overnight admissions it does not require the patient staying in the hospital for too long it just needs the patient to come to the hospital spend 2 3 hours take the tk immunotherapy and he's gone home it's as simple as that uh, okay uh, doctor how does smoking affect lung cancer treatments like yeah how does smoking affect affect i'm sorry i didn't get that question how does smoking affect lung cancer treatments like yeah, well, if a person is a smoker then how will it affect him if he has lung yeah that's cancer, a wonderful yeah that's a wonderful question that that's a great question actually and smoking does affect okay not just lung cancer smoking affects every cancer if you if if the person is smoking if a person who already has cancer is smoking it reduces his chances of cure it increases his toxicity it increases the uh, adverse effects associated with the chemotherapy immunotherapy or the molecular targeted therapy that he's taking and the overall outcomes are going to be bad make no mistake about it okay now having said that what is even more interesting is whether it is uh, gutka tambaku chaini khaini zarda bd cigarette tambaku all of that right they have more than 200 different substances which are just made to cause cancer these are known as carcinogenic substances nicotine is a substance which is added just to cause addiction now this must be the only product in the world where you specifically add something just to cause addiction nicotine does not cause cancer nicotine is just going to act on an area called as the uh, nucleus accumbens which is an area uh, uh, the reward system in our brain and it causes a dopamine surge and the dopamine surge is what makes you want to crave whenever the dopamine crashes it makes you crave for cigarette so basically what nicotine done is is it causes addiction and it causes a dopamine surge which is whenever it falls you feel anxiety you feel panicky you feel that i need to have another puff or ek sutta marna zaruri hai that kind of feeling right so this is the only substance in the world where you are actually adding something to something that you are consuming so that you remain addicted to it that's so dangerous and people believe that it causes oral cavity cancers and it causes lung cancers which is not true it does do that but it does far more than that it damages the oral mucosa it damages the lungs and causes lung cancers and oral cavity cancers but in addition to all of that it acts at the molecular level it acts at the dna level it causes mutations in your dna so smoking not only is going to cause lung cancer it also causes oral cavity cancers but it also causes esophageal cancers laryngeal cancers stomach cancers bladder cancers colon cancers gastric cancers kidney cancers and even blood cancers so people have this wrong assumption that smoking is going to cause lung cancer no smoking is going to cause every cancer in the body because it is going to act at a dna level when dna is present in every cell in the body the risk of having lung cancer is more than the risk you will have of having stomach cancer but having said that the relative risk of having lung cancer is around 18 to 20 times if you are a smoker but the risk of having stomach or esophageal cancers is still 13 to 14 times higher if you are a smoker so smoking causes all kinds of cancers you know and people need to understand that and i always get asked this question ki nahi wo to phukta nahi tha usko bhi cancer hua तो बात तो सही है कैंसर किसी को भी हो सकता है बट इफ यू स्मोक योर चांसेस आर गोइंग टू बी मोर देन समबडी हु डजंट स्मोक दैट्स दैट्स डेफिनेटिव दैट्स पीरियड देयर इज नथिंग टू डिस्कस इन दैट और डिबेट यू नो सो दैट्स हाउ इट वर्क्स देयर आर अदर फैक्टर्स व्हिच वर्क फॉर दिस बट स्मोकिंग इज अ बिगर वन स्मोकिंग सो लुक देयर आर फैक्टर्स देयर इज जेनेटिक्स एट प्ले व्हिच इज ह्यूज ऑलराइट दोस आर थिंग्स यू कांट चेंज बट देयर आर थिंग्स व्हिच यू कैन चेंज ऑफ द थिंग्स व्हिच यू कैन चेंज आई एम सॉरी आई हैड या of the things that you can change is the smoking is the alcohol uh, is your diet is your lifestyle um those are things which you can't change yes maybe i have a strong family history i can't do much you can do something about that also actually in fact if you were to gen discuss genetics in detail 
but there are things you can't do something about and there are things you can do something about don't creep about the things you can't do anything about but can you quit smoking and reduce your risk of cancer significantly the answer is absolutely yes as uh, you were saying about genetics and we can do something about that I i'm sorry just a voice there can you go again uh, as you were saying about genetics and you said that we can do something about it i have heard that in breast cancers there are some markers like if if there is some heredity in your family there are some markers that you can get tested for it so how does that work so um, like we talked about that you know all cancers are basically associated with genetic mutations is just that we don't know much right uh, science is just coming up dna gene uh, all of these things they sound fancy words but the truth is and as much as we pretend that we know there is a lot more that we don't know, right it's only in the last 15 20 years that we have really started understanding genomics genin next genomic sequencing is hardly just a decade old and uh, the biggest strides have taken place in the last few couple of years actually right um but what we do know is that there are certain cancers which are very highly associated with certain gene mutations breast and ovarian cancer for example is associated with a gene known as braca1 and braca2 braca1 and braca2 is clearly unequivocally associated with cancers especially breast and ovarian cancer in women prostate cancers and pancreatic cancers in men etc if a female has an ovarian can uh, has a braca1 or a braca2 mutation the risk of ovarian cancer goes as high as 40 to 60 times 40 to 60% that's incredibly high similarly if a female has a braca1 or a braca2 mutation the risk of breast cancer goes as high as 20 to 40% that is very very high so it's very important to know if we can find these people in advance because if we can do that then we can prevent these cancers from actually occurring in them by doing something in case of breast cancers something which is known as a prophylactic mastectomy or at least a very strong surveillance program similarly for ovarian cancers if she is postmenopausal we can put them on a ovarian uh, bilateral oophorectomy which is a prophylactic surgery and prevent the risk of ovarian cancer by nearly 60 and 70% which is fantastic all right because the risk of that person developing an ovarian cancer is as high as 60 and 70% i have three families right now who are braca positive who have undergone a prophylactic oophorectomy three patients whom i have had a prophylactic oophorectomy one patient this uh, in the last one or two months who has had a prophylactic bilateral mastectomy because the risk was very high the mother the grandmother and the daughter all three had cancers and for some reason i don't know why nobody had advised the mother or the grandmother when both of them had reached that go into braca mutation the daughter came to me for the first time i said your family history is so strong that we should do a braca i was so sure it would come positive and the minute it came positive i said look this is what we need to do we can prevent your future generations from developing this we can prevent them from going through what you and your mother and your grandmother have gone through so that is something we need to be aware of every patient should be asking is uh, you know doctor about what is genetics am i at a hereditary risk for cancer that is something that has to be discussed number one um number two ovarian cancer 20% of all ovarian cancers are going to have a braca mutation irrespective of whether there is a family history so in more developing nations like the uk and the us every ovarian cancer patient is advised to do a braca mutation apne yahan pe i tell all my patients to undergo a braca mutation if they are ovarian cancer because one in five is going to come positive and then if she comes positive i can tell her daughter that get checked i can tell her sister get checked i can tell her mother get checked and i can stop that from happening in them unfortunately in our case what happens is that the cost is uh, prohibitive you know it costs around 15000 or so roughly to get a braca mutation test done not everyone can afford that so i advise it but half my patients are able to afford it half of them are not so that's a problem is there a specific test for this to identify it's this just a simple blood test a simple blood test that's all it takes 
Okay. Uh, doctor, you uh, wrote a research on the rare case of sweet syndrome in acute myeloid. Uh, myeloid. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, it was a long time ago. Yeah, yeah so, so can sweet you syndrome elaborate Yeah, but <clears throat> so uh, that has got to do with a very different. Uh, so sweet syndrome is a neutrophilic infiltrate that occurs in in um, uh, in a various amount of diseases, not just in cancers. But this was a very atypical presentation. My patient had come with absolutely no complaints related to cancer. There were no fall in the counts or anything of that sort. He just had these skin lesions. And he first, in fact, went to the dermat department. Uh, we, we also saw the patient and we said, you know, this doesn't make sense because it's a very rare presentation. We got a biopsy done. The biopsy was not clearly suggestive of cancer, but it said that, you know, he has a very high neutrophilic infiltrate. So we went around that, you know, such a young patient coming with something like this. What is the reason that he has these infiltrates? So we did a whole lot of investigations. We, uh, you know, we are quite, I'm quite proud of the way we approached that case. And we then found out that it is an underlying blood cancer, which was missed by the previous, uh, you know, whoever I had uh, seen. And it was an underlying blood cancer, which was responsible for all those skin lesions. A very, very rare way for blood cancer to present. And so, yeah, so sweet syndrome, but it's not something that we would uh, discuss in, uh, uh, you know, as a routine because it's such a rare thing. Uh, a rare presentation, which is why we made a paper on it. So are there any rare case, cases which you have come across in your... Yes, I mean, so many times. I, I would say very honestly that I have done far more rare work when I was as a resident in uh, BJ Medical because what happens is there, uh, you are, you know, I, our daily OPD was 400 patients. So that 400 cancer patients is just huge. Once you come into private practice, majority of your patients are, um, you know, the run of the mill. But I have had this one recent, uh, I think it was uh, published in the Times of India, or I think it was published in uh, Outlook, Some, one of the two, yeah. uh, a girl who came in at Apollo, a very young girl, uh, 13, 14 year old, and she only came with her, her right eye was completely deviated to one side, there is complete blurring of vision and nothing else. Uh, and we got all the investigations done, we found that she had a huge tumor in her head, the surgeon said I can't operate this. Uh, the radiation uh, guy said that we can't operate this because the tumor is so big that it will just fry up her entire brain and she's just 14 years old. So, you know, everyone was perplexed of what to do. We investigated further. We got genetic tests done. We got a biopsy done. We found out it was something very rare known as Rosite Orphan's disease. Uh, so she had Rosite Orphan's disease. I think there were at that point only a few cases reported all over the world. Very few from India. I think I, ours was only the second case from India about or something like that. I don't remember, but very rare. And uh, we started her on uh, the treatment. It was uh, all the treatment was experimental. We said that we'll go ahead. Radiation was out, surgery was out. We started her on steroids, and uh, it's been I think more than a year. It's been a couple of more than a couple of months. It's been a long time since her tumor completely vanished. She's in complete remission. Young girl, um, she had bossing of the forehead that has completely gone. Her deviation of eye, her whole eye was just shifted to one side. You know, and it's completely back to normal. Her vision is now uh, absolutely six by six. And so, you know, fantastic. So that we had published that case. So yeah, we do get rare cases. Every once in a while, there's a rare case, but far and few in between now. Uh, yes, doctor. Uh, okay. So can you please tell me how can patients manage their treatment related side effects? Like after treatment, there are a lot of side effects. We that generally we take care of that ourselves. So usually nausea, vomiting, weakness, you'll be given medicines for nausea. You'll be given medicines for vomiting. You'll be given injections so that your counts don't fall too much. Uh, so most of the side effects that occur, the body ache and all, we give aspirins and dolo and all of that. Most of the side effects are manageable. Look, chemotherapy is not as bad as what it was uh, 5 or 10 or 15 years back. The drugs have improved tremendously. The side effects have come down tremendously. So chemo is not as bad as it once was. 
but we have options which can even be better than chemotherapy but side effects by and large are manageable i don't remember the last time that i really um, lost a patient to chemo all right um, losing patients to cancer is something that you have to get used to because you can't win every battle we try our best but sometimes we win sometimes we don't but i can't remember the last time i lost a patient because of toxicities related to chemotherapy because things have advanced so much and if you take the right amount of care it is possible to make sure that your patients come out of whatever chemotherapy uh, side effects they may have can i just have a minute i'm about to lose my battery charge just give me a second yeah. sorry yeah. no problem doctor uh, yes doctor so uh, as you said that all the side effects are sort of manageable now so uh, that's a good news but yeah, i found easily manageable i won't lie it's not that there are no side effects of course there are okay uh, because you're treating a disease like cancer if you're treating cancer the treatment can't be if the disease is so bad the treatment can't be so easy uh, but having said that do 99.9% of all patients get through it and come out stronger the answer is yes majority of them i mean more than majority almost all of them are going to tolerate the chemo you don't generally end up losing any patient to toxicities of chemotherapy uh but it is still difficult you know i i do not wish it upon anybody but i promise them that if anybody has to go through it it is something they will be able to do yeah from the survivors that i have talked to they have always said this one thing that once we were through this treatment we realized that we can do anything now so that is something absolutely. a difficult journey but it absolutely. makes them stronger somehow absolutely absolutely Uh, so doctor can you please uh, shed some light on ewing sarcoma and their treatments yes so ewing sarcoma is a kind of bone tumor all right um, so the most common bone tumors are um, ewing sarcomas osteosarcomas these are the most common i in fact have um, i i had in fact ironically i had three bone tumors in my morning opd today all three young guys ewing sarcoma is so i have this girl uh, with an ewing sarcoma whom i am treating today morning i saw her and a young boy with osteosarcoma that i saw today morning both uh, both doing fine but so ewing sarcoma is a tumor of the bone it generally occurs in the age group of teens it occurs in uh, in, in uh, you know age group of 15 to 20 and 15 to 25 in that age group it's an aggressive tumor it's a very very aggressive tumor but it's a highly curable tumor all right so the basic treatment involves you start with chemotherapy you shrink the tumor as much as you can you do surgery after that for ewing tumor in my case just the today morning's example is a girl who had a proximal tibia uh, lesion uh, she received 9 weeks of chemotherapy post 9 weeks of chemotherapy the tumor had shrunk fantastically she went for surgery she came and met me one month now after the surgery and she is doing perfectly fine she was only sad when i told her that we still have some chemo left you know so she was sad about that but otherwise doing perfectly well she's not lost weight also she did fantastic in fact and uh, so the treatment involves chemotherapy followed by surgery if the margins are positive or if the surgery is not possible then you might have to consider radiation after that and then again you give adjuvant uh, chemotherapy that's basically how uh, the treatment of and osteosarcoma works the chemotherapy drugs that are used differ in the two of them but that's how basically you end up treating a a bone cancer tumor doctor sometimes it also happens in adults like this uh, this cancer ewing sarcoma so how is it different from the usual age group but, all right so what differs in an ewing sarcoma there are two ways in ways ewing sarcoma can prevent present differently one it can occur in it can occur in an older age group like you just pointed out that it could occur in adults and two sometimes very rarely ewing sarcoma can occur outside the bone this is known as extra osseous ewing sarcoma which means despite the fact that 90% of all ewing sarcomas occur in the bone there is that 
rare case of having sarcoma that occurs exactly like an having sarcoma but it occurs in the soft tissue instead of the bone so these are two different ways it can present and having sarcoma in an adult say somebody in as 35 40 45 is unfortunately more aggressive usually all right that doesn't mean it can't be treated but you will be surprised to know that children generally tolerate chemo better than adults okay a teenager has a better shot of tolerating chemo than uh, than a than an adult in his 45 50 obviously an aged adult would of course have a much more difficult time um so that makes things more difficult the treatment per se doesn't differ it will still involve chemotherapy in osteosarcomas it differs slightly in an older adult group age group you don't use a drug called as methotrexate you skip that drug so the chemo protocol changes uh, in having sarcoma i by and large treat them the same way because it is a more aggressive treatment uh, but i've always noticed that adults have a more difficult time tolerating treatment when it comes to having sarcomas and the outcomes are not as great as for example children children do much better now this girl that i talked or this boy that i talked had absolutely no complications their counts used to go down but i never had to admit them post chemo ever everything was managed at home uh, on on a phone call and you know we managed it each time and uh, she's doing perfectly fine adults generally don't do so well it, they have a more difficult time managing and the outcomes are not so great for having sarcoma in adults but the treatment remains the same is is it because of the immune system like uh, as we grow our immune system a very difficult question to answer i'll be very honest i don't want to bluff my way out of it um the reason is something we don't know we don't know why having sarcoma behaves a certain way in adults and why it behaves a certain way in children just as we don't know a lot of other things that why for example quite simply put why did the uh, the covid virus not affect children in the first way these are just the way nature plays this is the way biology plays out it is very difficult to know the answer to certain things right but that's the way it is so similarly why having sarcoma is more aggressive in adults i don't have the answer for that and i doubt anybody does but the fact remains it is more aggressive whether it is to do with the immune system or whether it is to do with the genetics i don't i assure you it's not given in any books why okay uh, doctor as a lot of patients come to you uh, can you tell me like what are the common misconceptions regarding cancer in the society which you have heard from patients so you know it's not misconceptions as much but i would say that what i find very disheartening especially when it comes to breast cancer no is that many women will tell you that they have had this chhati mein gaant pichle 5 6 mahino se and it's very sad that they don't tell because they are embarrassed about it whatever social reasons other reasons also are there but mainly it is social reasons all right uh, and i find it very depressing meaning I, i because many a times what happens is these are young females who come with lumps in the breast who say that they have had it young means i'm talking about 40s and 50s which is relatively young and they have had it since 6 7 months 8 months now the problem is they will only come to you it was the size of a pea and they only come to you when it grows to the size of a lemon or an orange right and uh, then they will tell you that uh, we have known about it but no i didn't tell anyone and i kept quiet about it and the problem is if the cancer is spreading on the outside no it's also spreading on the inside so what was potentially a stage 1 cancer and definitely curable will unfortunately be a stage 3 cancer and if you are really unlucky it will be a stage 4 cancer and that is very disheartening i feel very bad when that happens when a, a relatively young individual knows that he has a lump or something which has to get tested and they don't do that so that is one thing i find very disheartening the other thing which i feel is grossly lacking in our country is screening programs um a mammography is a very simple test okay a mammography is just removing an x-ray of the breast in the us and the uk 85% of all breast cancers are diagnosed on mammographies which means that they are diagnosed either in stage 1 or maximum stage 2 because if it if a cancer is found on mammography it's not going to be a big lump you can't even feel it you have just found it on an x-ray 
So in US and UK, after the age of 40, screening mammographies are done by everyone every year. Once a year, it's, it's a simple test. The problem is our, in our country, no one does that. So in our country, I can't remember the last time that a lady has come to me with a screening mammography and said, mammography maybe one or two patients. They will all be ladies with huge lumps and it's, it's always in stage two, stage three and sometimes stage four. So screening mammography, I wish that the government would uh, promote it more. I try my best. Uh, but that is one thing. The second thing is cervical cancer. Cervical cancer is the only cancer in the world against which there is a vaccine. All right, it's the only cancer in the world. Um, there is a vaccine available for cervical cancer. It's a WHO promoted vaccine. There are around 70, no, no, it's more than that. There are now around 100 countries in the world which have incorporated the cervical vaccine, cervical cancer vaccine, which is either cervarix or gadrasil, it's known as, as a part of their national immunization program. Okay. India has the highest number of cervical cancer patients anywhere in the world. And we still haven't made it a part of our national immunization program. I just fail to see why. I'm not blaming government A or government B. It's all governments. All right. It makes no sense. It has brought down pap smear, which is a very simple screening test that every woman should do after the age of 30. It's just once in three years. It costs some 700, 800 rupees. That's it. Once in every three years, you have to do a pap smear. It will diagnose cervical cancer on an average of five to 10 years before the cancer actually takes place. That's incredible. Pap smear along with cervical cancer vaccination has brought down the cancer incidence by 90% in developing nations. India has the highest number of cancer patients, cervical cancer patients anywhere in the world. And we still don't have it as a part of our national immunization program, which 100 countries over the world do. And we still don't do pap smears regularly. So that is things where we need to make a difference. You know, forget about immunotherapy and forget about hormonal therapy and targeted therapy and all of that. Those are fancy words. And a large number of your population, despite everything, is never going to afford immunotherapy. But can they prevent cervical cancer from occurring? Absolutely. That you just have to spend 800 rupees once in three years. So that is where I wish that people were more educated. That is where I think that we need to focus on. So screening of cancers and cancer prevention it should be the goal and cancer treatment should be a secondary outcome. Even I was not aware about the vaccine that we have available for this cancer. Like right now, I'm shocked that there is a vaccine for this. So that's a news and I'm sure a lot of patients will get to know and people will get to know that they can get this done. Is it available in India? Like if Absolutely, we... it's available everywhere. It is it's very easy to take. It's exactly like taking your hepatitis B vaccine and it costs also exactly the same. It's not common because I've never heard of it. Like that's I have thing, heard no. of the, the lack of awareness. It works best uh, in the age group of 9 to 11 years, 9 to 14 years is the best age group. But up to the age of 35, you can take it. It will be efficacious, although the efficacy keeps going down. So it, it, in majority of the nations that I talk, 100 nations, it's a part of the national immunization. Just say diphtheria, polio, DPT ka vaccine. Similarly, when the child is, the girl is nine years old, they will go tell her that now it's time to take your HPV vaccine. That's how it works. That's, that's an amazing development if India does adapt it someday. So that will be an amazing development. In private, in private clinics, a large number of people have started doing that now. So the uh, doctors going to private, I mean, patients going to private practitioners and taking cervical cancer vaccine is, is happening. But it needs to happen at the government level. Okay, doctor, I just have last question for you. As you have recently joined Zenonco.io, so I just wanted to know that how do you think that Zenonco.io is helping cancer patients? Yeah, I'm, I'm not going to bluff. I really don't know much about it. So I'm hoping that, look, I hope that it helps. I, I think cancer patients are some of the most uh, difficult part of their life. 
it's the worst phase of their life to be in it's not just for the patient it's also for the patient's relatives it's a very difficult time i feel for all my patients i can't imagine what they go through i think that they are all awesome and their superpowers you need to be really strong to go through the kind of things that they have to go through the treatment the emotional component the financial burdens are ridiculous all right uh, if you want to do it in private the cost i mean i am saying this despite being in probably one of the biggest private hospitals in the country that if you want to do it in private the costs are ridiculous uh, if you want to do it in government the waiting is ridiculous and uh, the patient is just torn in between um, anything that gets patients treatment more easily accessible any platform uh, whether it is zen onco anybody who is doing and doing something to make treatment more easily available or at least treatment options more easily available to cancer patients is doing a fantastic job in that case i wish zen onco all the best and i'd be you know very happy to support them in any which doctor is there anything that you would like to suggest to cancer patients who will watch this video uh, like some tips to do or something like that i would simply at given the current situation only recommend that all my cancer all mine all cancer patients in general if you haven't discussed please go and discuss with your oncologist about the covid vaccine so you know that's a plus plus absolutely priority and that would be the most important tip i can give considering the situation discuss with your oncologist whether you are the right candidate whether you should be taking the covid vaccine in all likelihood the answer would probably be yes ask him when is the best time to take the covid vaccine if you are going on chemotherapy this is something very important you should not be left out in the covid race does covid affect cancer patients differently we really don't know the answer to that i have had read i have read reports where one patient with lymphoma whose cancer completely disappeared after he developed a covid infection but that's a really rare case that came in i think bmj it was in british medical journal but having said that we really don't know at present i don't want to speculate the answer for now is probably not uh, okay doctor that's it from my side uh, so thank you so much for your valuable input and for being with us during today's knowledge sharing session all the time out of your busy schedule to be with us and to share so many insights so i'm sure a lot of people will benefit from this session thank you once again from genonco.io and lovels cancer for this insightful session on our platform absolutely thank you thank you thank you, thank you.